Good morning. Good to see everybody. Well, I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the uh, book of Philippians. And uh, let me just state for the new folks so that they're not in the dark here. Um, we have started a, uh, a new study through the book of Philippians here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. It's a little different from what we normally do. Usually when we take a book of the Bible to study, we go verse by verse. That's the standard way we uh, teach here at Calvary. We've already taught Philippians verse by verse. And so because of the times we're living in and how things have gotten very difficult for many, and a lot of Christians are having trouble maintaining joy, we thought, you know, Philippians, uh, the theme of uh, Philippians is joy. Paul wrote it while he was in prison in Rome. So if Paul could have joy in prison, I mean, it's a good book for us to study. We might have joy in whatever we're going through. So what I did was I just took a concordance on my Bible program and looked up every place in Philippians where the word joy, rejoicing, uh, rejoiced, uh, appeared. And then I went to each of those passages to study, well, what was the context in which Paul is using joy and rejoice and so on? And then I studied those passages, and out of them came the main points for this series. And um, we've already looked at two of them. Joy in fellowship, which is chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Then we looked at joy in proclaiming the gospel, chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. This morning we want to start with the third main um, point of this series. It comes out of chapter 1, verse 25, and uh, it's called Joy of Faith. Now, let's back up to verse 19. And uh, as we read these verses, um, understand the heart of Paul. And may God give us all grace to have his heart before we come to the phrase we want to look at this morning. So verse 19, Paul said, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul was confident that if they kept praying for him, that God would get him out of prison without it resulting in his execution. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that is in nothing, excuse me, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For, me, for to me uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress. And here it is, for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So here in verse 25, Paul mentions joy again, but this time he connects it to faith. Now that phrase, joy of faith, um, I wasn't quite sure exactly what he was getting at. 
Um, so I pulled out, uh, I pulled up various translations to see what each of them, uh, how they translated it. About half of them uh, translated it joy in faith or joy in the faith. So I started to look at some of the commentators and some of them just glossed over it all together. They didn't address it. So then I went to my Greek program and checked the Greek. And it seems that from the Greek, the best translation seems to be joy of faith. If Paul had said joy in faith, or in other words, the joy that comes from being in the faith, he would have been using faith as a synonym for salvation. In that regard, he would have been talking about the joy that comes from being a Christian, you know, somebody in the faith. But by taking but by talking about the joy of faith, Paul is talking about the joy that comes from having faith. Great. Let's all close the book. We'll go home. Now, what exactly does that mean? Okay, what, what exactly does that mean? Well, first of all, to properly understand what Paul meant when he said joy of faith, or again, the joy that comes from having faith, it's critical that we understand what biblical faith is all about. Now, we know this is an important subject because Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, we can't even please God. So we know we're talking about something that's very important to our walk. So I did a little more research. The word faith appears 389 times in the New King James Version. But what about believing? Okay, I checked that 250 times in the Bible. There are many other passages that inference faith. They don't use the words exactly. So guys, this is a pretty large subject, a pretty important subject. And I'm not overstating it when I tell you that your Christian life, whether it's victorious or not, fruitful or not, will rise or fall on whether your concept of biblical faith is right or wrong. With that in mind, we need to understand what biblical faith is, which we are going to look at, first of all, by looking at what biblical faith is not. We're living in the last days. The devil is attacking God's word, has since the beginning of time. But he's ramping up his attacks for a lot of reasons. He knows. Faith connects us to God. If you mess up faith, it destroys the connection with God. That doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. But it certainly means you will not be the recipient of the manifold blessings of God he wants to pour upon your life right here on the earth as you serve him and so on. So let's start, first of all, by looking at what biblical faith is not. Biblical faith isn't a force. Think of Star Wars. Think of it, but then reject it. <laughs> biblical faith isn't a force like the Star Wars force. However, those in the Word of Faith movement believe that that is exactly what it is. They believe that faith is a force that functions according to certain laws. Word of Faith teacher Charles Capps said, and I quote, God's word in your mouth produces a force called faith. It generates a spiritual force called faith. Kenneth Copeland said, and I quote, Faith is your servant. 
It's a force. It's a force just like gravity that we can use because we are part of God. And listen to this. We have all of his capabilities. Did you know that? Everything God can do, you can do. Do you realize that? First of all, why do they believe that? And these guys aren't the only ones. I've done research in the Word of Faith movement. They all believe this. When he makes the statement that we can do what God does because we have all of his capabilities, how do they come to that conclusion? Well, here's give it to you in a nutshell. You're children of God, right? All right, well, when a dog has children, what do they have? Little dogs. When a cat has children, what does it have? Little cats. When God has children, what does he have? Little gods. Now, please help me. Because in my Bible, whenever God is spelled with a little g, that's idolatry. Okay? But this is how they get to from point A to point B. You have the capacity to speak things into existence because in the book of Genesis chapter 1, God spoke, things happened. God spoke again, other things happened. There's power in the spoken word. And because you are God's kids, your little gods, that same creative force is in your mouth when you speak things that are not into existence. And so once again, these folks in the Word of Faith, and there's probably others, I'm just mentioning these guys, but um, these um, and other teachers in the Word of Faith movement believe that Again, faith is a force that functions according to certain laws. And once a person learns what those laws are, they can harness this power of faith and use it to their advantage. Maybe you've heard of Kenneth Hagin. I think he's gone now. Uh, but he was the granddaddy of the Word of Faith movement. And in his booklet titled, Have Faith in Your Faith, he writes, that's what you need, that's what you've got to learn to do to get things from God. Have faith in your faith. And there's a proof text to support this teaching that faith is a powerful force. Word of faith teachers will quote Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Why don't you turn to it, because we're going to come back to it in a minute, but I'm going to read to you Hebrews 11, verse 3. Now, to prove this point that there is power in faith, they'll take you, first of all, to Hebrews 11:3. 3. Here's what it actually says. I'm reading out of the New King James. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. In other words, we weren't there to see it, so we know by faith. How do we know? Because God, God's word tells us that. That God created everything out of nothing, right? The whole universe was made by him. We know that by faith because we weren't there to see it. But those in the Word of Faith movement, also known as Positive Confession Movement, twist that verse and they quote it this way. We understand that it was by faith that God framed the world's. By that little reshuffling of words, faith is no longer man's belief in God's power, which created the universe. 
But faith is now turned into a force that God used to create the universe. And you can too. Maybe not create the universe, but create a lot of stuff in your own life that you would like to have. And again, they tell us that this force operates according to certain laws like gravity or electricity. And if we learn these laws and how they operate, again, we can harness this force of faith and use it to create whatever we want. Health, wealth, success, or you name it. You're in the driver's seat. But listen, even a cursory study of God's word reveals that faith isn't a force. In fact, listen to me now, faith is nothing. What? Faith is nothing in and of itself. As a standalone concept, it is nothing. In other words, it's the object faith is attached to that determines whether or not it's meaningful or meaningless, powerful or powerless. One of the favorite proof texts of those in the positive confession movement to prove that there is power in faith to do our bidding is in Mark 11. Why well, you turn there? And they'll always start you in verse 23. When you study God's word, you always look at the context. And if somebody tells you something, they pull something out of the scriptures and they use it to teach something that you know isn't right. You feel it in your spirit, or you know it from reading God's word. Go back and look at the whole context. Okay? But here's what they'll say. They'll quote Jesus. Oh, you can't get a better source than Jesus. Come on. Go right to the top with this. Right. You know? So the Lord Jesus is saying that. They'll tell you, it's not me. It's Jesus. Mark 11. It's in the red. That's right. Mark 11, verse 23, where the Lord Jesus said, most... For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says, see, it's power in the spoken word, got to say it. Whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things which those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, Whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. So there you have it. Right out of the mouth of Jesus. I mean, doesn't this is about as powerful as it gets. Right? I mean, doesn't this absolutely prove their teaching is correct? That faith is a force unleashed through the spoken word. Well, if you back up a verse in Mark 11... And read verse 22, which they never do. Here's what Jesus said. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in who? God. Oh, that's interesting. You notice he didn't say have faith in your faith. He said have faith in God. Folks, let me tell you this. If you were to say to a mountain, Get up, throw yourself in the sea. And it obeyed you. Know this, either God made that mountain move or Satan made that mountain move, but your faith didn't make that mountain move. How do I know that? Because, again, faith has no power in and of itself. Think of an electrical cord. Faith is like an electrical cord. An electrical cord has no power in and of itself, 
but is only a conductor of power, but then only if it's plugged into a power source, right? If you don't plug an electric cord into a power source, it has no power in and of itself. As Christians, we can believe a whole bunch of stuff. You can listen to characters on TV and radio. Not that everybody on the radio is bad. Well, you can listen to people on the radio and TV, right? Um, and they'll tell you all kinds of stuff. I've, I've run into people over the years that believe all kinds of weird things because some TV preacher told them that's what God, God's Word is telling them. And they just believe it. They don't go back. They're not Bereans. They don't go back and check it out for themselves to see whether or not this teaching is validly is a valid Bible teaching. And so they've connected their faith to God in the sense that they believe this teaching and now God's going to make it happen. Again, faith has no power in and of itself. It has to be connected to God when it comes to the promises that God has given us in his word. Again, guys, that's why Jesus didn't say to his disciples, have faith in your faith. He said, have faith in God. Having faith in your faith is not only unbiblical, it is illogical. Because again, faith only finds meaning and validity depending on what it is attached to. Maybe you've heard somebody say to you, I have, uh, it's not important what you believe, only that you believe in something. Now think about that statement. That is disconnecting faith from God, the actual source of power, and making faith a standalone thing whereby faith is important, not the one it's or the thing it's attached to. I think we all know that's ridiculous. And by the way, it's not important what you believe, only that you believe in something. Of course it's important what you believe. The Bible says what you believe will determine where you spend eternity. Look, I think we all know that if a person believes a lie with all their heart, that's not going to get them into heaven. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a person. But in the end, that thing will often lead to hell. Look, there are many people who believe with all their heart in whatever religious system or, you know, that they've been, they believe it. 22 years ago, 19... Muslims hijacked two planes and flew them into the Twin Towers in New York. They died for what they believed. They believed that once they died in jihad, they would have instant access into paradise where they will have unsatisfiable, or insatiable, I should say, hunger for sex, drink, food. What is it, 70 or 72 virgins will be waiting for them? course after they flew those planes into those towers and they opened their eyes in the next life they realized that they were lied to they were lied to who lied to them the devil keep that in mind we'll come back to that you can't have more faith than that which leads you to die for what you believe in nobody could question the validity of their faith in the sense that it was real but that's what the Bible is saying. You can believe in a lie with all your heart, and it's still not going to get you to heaven. It may seem right to you on the earth, but in the end, it's going to lead to destruction. 
Guys, biblical faith is a channel or a conduit that connects us to God and allows the power of God to flow from him into our lives in the form of answered prayer or the grace to live for him, the grace to stop doing things that are destructive, you know, alcohol or drugs or watching porn or something. God will give us grace if we seek him. And if we are connected to him in fellowship, we're Christians, of course, and we seek God, his power, it's like, to use another metaphor, faith is like an umbilical cord. Just like a child, a baby is connected to its mother, her body through an umbilical cord through which when she eats food, nourishment, and everything else is passed along to the baby, we are connected to God through faith. Everything we need to live for him, he supplies to us each day as long as we are walking in the spirit and drawing close to him. But let me just say this. I don't care how much you believe something. No amount of prayer on our part is going to force God to act independently of his will. I say that because you have teachers, and they may not use those words, but the implication is pretty obvious. If you have enough faith, God becomes your servant. You can basically order around the Almighty. Because faith, he has to obey. Your faith is really now in control. These people teach that, look, understand the laws that govern faith because once you master those laws, you can point your faith at God and he's got to give you pretty much what you want. And I'm here to tell you the Bible is very clear that no amount of faith in prayer is going to force God to act independently of his will. How do I know that? Because the Bible says it clearly. You can turn to 1 John chapter 5. And while you're doing that, let me just say this. No matter how much faith you have, God is sovereign. He is sovereign. And he remains completely sovereign as to how, when, where, and if he will release his power at all into a given situation. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. John said, now this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know, and the idea is that God hears everything, but the idea is that he hears us in the sense he will be favorable to our requests if it's asked in his will. If we ask according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we will have the petitions we have asked of him. All of our prayers have to pass through the grid of God's sovereignty. This is what they leave out in this teaching. If you have enough faith, you can pretty much write your own ticket with God. That's what Hagen said. You can write your own ticket with God. In other words, it's a blank check, fill it in. And I'm here to tell you the Bible is very clear that God is sovereign. God does not obey me, I obey him. He is not my servant, I am his servant. And what I pray to him, like Jesus prayed in the garden three times, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, the cross. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. If this was a true teaching and Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, which you've got to study the passage and understand what's really going on. It's not that he was trying to get out of the cross. He said, for this cause I came into the world. But there was things going on, rhetorical things that 
I don't have time to bring up right now. But if this was a true teaching, Jesus would have used it to get out of the cross, if that's what he really wanted. But he, he'd never get one against his Father's will. He said, I always do those things that please the Father. He never did anything but what the Father wanted him to do. Even in the garden. Here's what I want, Father. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You know you're becoming a mature Christian when that's your attitude. You can pray for whatever you think is a right thing in this given situation. But you always leave the door open for God to do what he wants to do. Because I don't have the big picture. I only see what's in front of me. I don't know what's coming down the road a year, two years, or whatever. God does. And sometimes he's, well, not sometimes, he's always working today in my life for the future. He's always setting things up, organizing things. That's why sometimes things that God does in your life, you're like, Lord, I don't, this doesn't make sense. Uh, not to you right now, God is saying. Give it a six months or a year. You'll understand then. So I trust him. I trust him. All right. So that's what biblical faith is not. It's not a force. So then what is it? Well, there are two, two main types of faith the Bible says a person can uh, exercise. Now, there's a third. It's called the gift of faith. Maybe we'll touch on it briefly next week. But for this morning, I just want to touch on the major ones. Two major types of faith the Bible says a person can exercise. Saving faith and practical everyday faith. To come to Jesus requires one kind of faith, and to walk with Jesus each day requires another. Guys, saving faith is the faith of a moment that affects my eternity. Practical faith is moment-by-moment -moment faith that affects my daily life. The two classic verses, and there's many others, I just picked out two of the most well-known ones. The two classic verses with regard to saving faith are, you can write these down, first of all, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 is one of the classic passages on saving faith. It says it right here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay? In that not of yourself, you didn't save yourself. Salvation is a gift of God. It's not the result of your good heart, work, good works, lighting candles, praying rosaries. I did those things when I was younger. Going to church, helping out in the local food pantry, that's not wrong to do. It's a good thing. It's just that those things will not earn you salvation. They won't earn you a place in heaven. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But... Knowing Jesus comes by putting your faith in him and receiving him as your Savior into your heart. And besides, God doesn't want us up in heaven going to everybody boasting. You know, I really belong here. You should have seen the life I li I nailed it. You should have seen the life I lived on the earth, you know, when I was down there. I mean, the Lord is blessed to have me up here. No, no, Gabriel, you don't have to bother me, but close. Uh, okay, you know, and God's going... No way do I want that. First of all, we're not worthy to get into heaven by our good works, right? So God took it out of our hands. We're all fallen sinners. We all deserve hell. And God offers us a gift. You don't earn a gift. You receive a gift. 
you receive the gift of salvation or put in your faith in Christ. Another key verse on saving faith uh, is Romans 10, 17, where Paul said, so then faith, and he's talking about saving faith, comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So the idea is that, you know, somebody witnesses to you or uh, you turn on the radio and some guy or gal is preaching the gospel and all you're captivated and you li- never heard this before. So you start listening to what they're quoting the Bible and all of a sudden it's like you, you feel like this is right. This is true. And so when they ask you at the end if you want to pray the prayer to receive, you do that right in your car there. But faith, saving faith, often comes by hearing and seeing. Hopefully, when you speak the gospel, you're already living the gospel. Because you know, a lot of people talk the talk, they don't walk the walk. And so the world labels them hypocrites. Now, a classic verse on the subject of practical everyday faith is found in Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Now, this is such such an important verse that it's quoted three times in the New Testament. First of all, Romans 1.17. Secondly, Galatians 3.11. And then Hebrews 10.38. It's the phrase, the just shall live by faith. Yeah, the just gets, well, sinners get saved by faith, and now they're the just. Well, how do they live? By hard work? No. That's Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3. No. Having begun in the Spirit, you're not going to be made perfect through hard work now. You got saved by faith, you have to walk with God by faith. It's a supernatural life. You and I don't have the power to live that life. So what do we do? We pray every day. God, we draw close to the Lord and we pray every day that he would give us the power we need to live the life he's calling us to live. But the idea of the just shall live by faith. Yeah, the just shall live by faith in the promises of God, in his word, in the character of God that he's trustworthy. Guys, practical faith starts out by God giving each of us, as Paul said in Romans 12, verse 3, that when we get saved, God gives each of us a measure of faith, a measure of faith. But then the more we exercise it, the more it grows and the stronger it gets, right? I mean, think of a a baby. When a baby is born, God gives to that baby a measure of muscles. Some of us grow up and don't do much with it. So our muscles don't grow that much. I don't know how how many ounces a piece of pizza weighs, but... You know, if you're going to do pizza curls and soda curls, you might get a little something. I don't know. But some people go all out, right? They take the muscles they were given by God, and they get into the gym, and they exercise, and those muscles get bigger. Sometimes they become bodybuilders. My point is, faith is very much like that. God gives you a measure when you're converted, you're saved, And now he wants you to exercise that faith every day. When you read the word, he's saying to you, do you believe this? Oh, sure, Lord. Well, then I'm going to ask you to live it this week. Oh, really? Some people don't do so well 
I mean, it's one thing to say in your heart, I believe God's word. I believe his promises. God says, okay, well, let's see. And then he puts you in a situation where you're not doing so well because you're not really trusting God. In many ways, it's easier to exercise the faith of a moment that saves than it is to exercise everyday faith for a lifetime. All right, as we continue to understand faith, what is the definition of biblical faith? Well, let me first of all give you uh, three quotes from, from Christians who define faith. Um, I'm sure there are many others that have done this. I like these three. But one author defines it this way. He said, faith is confidence in the trustworthiness of God. It is the conviction that what God says is true and that what he promises will come to pass. That's good. Another puts it this way. Biblical faith is a confident ex expectation that grabs the future and drags it into the present so that it governs the way I think, live, and view this life. Because faith is what's coming. But I have to live as though it's already come. I like what Oswald Chambers said. Now, he wrote a fantastic uh, devotional. Um, my utmost for his highest. Chambers said, and I quote, faith, true biblical faith, never knows where it is being led, often from day to day, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. Now, I like that because what he's telling us and what I think is important that we understand, true faith doesn't seek to control God. It seeks to be controlled by God, again, a lot of Christians seem to be confused about who's in charge here, who the master is. A lot of this faith teaching, again, makes me the master and God the servant. That's backwards. I will tell you this, the Bible is very clear that true faith perseveres. It hangs in there. True faith sees us through the difficulties of life, even as David expressed in Psalm 27. He said, I would have lost heart. He was going through some very severe trials. People were trying to kill him. He said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed, there's faith, that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, he said, I would have given up all hope. I would have, I would have been totally devastated if I didn't believe in the promises of God that he was with me and I believe he was going to work this out. And I would see his goodness once again here on the earth in my life. In other words, in the land of the living. People say, well, yeah, yeah, David, you know, well, he knew he was going to go to heaven. But what about here on the earth? He's talking about here on the earth. Remember, David was the guy who wrote Psalm 23. One verse says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear the evil. Why? Because you're with me. Aren't you glad David didn't say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fall dead in that valley. Well, there's no hope in that. Now he said, because sometimes God will lead our lives through some very dark places. Seems like we're goners. But we have to have faith. 
we have to trust. He's on the throne. He is with me. And I'm going to keep looking to him to get me through this. Guys, biblical faith is so important to our Christian lives that between the principle the just shall live by faith at the end of Hebrews chapter 10 and the exhortation run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, at the beginning of chapter 12, the Holy Spirit inserts an entire chapter on faith, defining, explaining, and illustrating for us what true faith is all about and what it looks like in the lives of those who possess it. Well, it's well worth your, your study. Hebrews 11. Now, I will say this to you. One of the great lessons that this chapter of faith teaches, some call it the hall of faith. Hear me out. Because you have folks teaching that as long as you have faith. Somehow we will protect you from all adversity. It's a shield to shield you from the enemy. Shield of faith. It's out of Hebrews 6. See what I mean? Okay, well, you're, you're, you're pulling things out of context. Let me just say this to you. Hebrews 11 teaches us that just because a person has great faith, it doesn't mean that they won't experience, listen, great adversities at times or great persecutions that lead ultimately to death doesn't mean that you won't uh, someday maybe be martyred for your faith. He makes the point to say, though, if you have faith, no matter what happens on this earth, you trust God ultimately because you're going to see him in heaven someday. What did Job say? Yet though he slays me, I will still trust him. If God doesn't heal me of cancer, if I go to war and I'm killed on the battlefield, if I'm serving my community as a police officer or a firefighter, and one day my life as a Christian is ended, I'm going to still trust God in the sense that I prepared for this. And I know when I close my eyes in death on the earth and open them to a new life, the first face I'm going to see is Jesus. And I will never know sorrow or pain or sickness or death ever again. I believe that with all my heart. So, Lord, if it's my time to leave this earth and you need to take me off this earth, even if you slay me, I will never lose faith in you. All right, quickly, what is faith? Well, the best definition of faith is the one found in the scriptures. Turn to Hebrews 11, if you're not already there. Now, we'll just introduce this this week and pick it up again next week as we kind of bring this to a close. But a lot of this is going to set up our study for next time. But had to lay some groundwork. I mean, joy of faith. Okay, great. But what faith? What is faith? And so on. Well, what does the Bible say about faith? What does God say about faith, right? Hebrews 11, 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Guys, faith is always tied to things hoped for, never to things that 
have already come to pass, even as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 24, hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? If you have something, you're not hoping for it. It's there. You've got it. We're not hoping for salvation. We have it as Christians. So what are we hoping for right now? We're hoping for Jesus' return to get us out of here and to bring us into a kingdom someday where he'll be the king over all the earth, a kingdom of righteousness. That's our hope now. But listen to me. Biblical hope is never a maybe hope or I hope so hope. It's always a, always a certain hope, a settled fact hope, a sure thing hope. We're still talking about faith, by the way. And the reason, the biblical, reason that biblical hope is a sure thing, a settled fact, is because it's always tied to a promise of God. And since God cannot lie, it means that everything he has promised us in his word as believers, well, he will absolutely bring it to pass. Now, we're starting to understand what Paul meant when he talked about the joy of faith. Now we're starting to get and understanding where he was going with this. There is great joy when it comes to having faith, in other words, believing with all your heart, the promises that are ours in Christ, listen, starting with salvation. Turn quickly to Hebrews 6. I'm going to take you here into 2 Peter 1, and these passages, both of the writers are, are talking about some deep theological subjects. The conclusion, or what they're actually saying, though, you know, the gist of it is, is very clear. So Hebrews 6, starting with verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that would be us, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, immutable means unchanging, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. What is he talking about? He's talking about salvation that is ours through faith and not salvation that we work for through religion to earn. We can't earn it. The Bible is very clear on that. But we don't have to because Jesus earned it. Jesus paid the price. He went to the cross. He paid the sin, the debt we owed that we couldn't pay. He rose from the dead to conquer death. It's all ours. We have this faith as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, that I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus did, not because of what I do. And as long as I put my faith in him, will give me his righteousness which will allow me to enter into heaven when I die. Because the only righteousness that God receives up into heaven is the righteousness of Christ. Jesus said that in John 16. 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1 verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who, is, who uh, called us by glory and virtue, by which uh, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, 
that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You can read the whole context. Again, Peter's talking about the same thing. It's our faith in Jesus that gets us into heaven. And this is a promise. God's given us many great and precious promises. This one is at the top of the list. The promise of eternal life if you put your faith in Christ and stop trying to work for what you can't earn, but what God is offering is a free gift. You don't earn a free gift, you, you receive a gift. And that's what Peter's talking about too. Listen to me as we wrap it up. The only true joy, joy of, of uh, faith, okay, the only true joy, and I'm not talking about outward happiness. I'm talking about inward joy. There's a big difference. Go back to the start of this series. We defined it. The only true joy to be found in this world is the joy that comes from knowing Jesus in your heart. This is ultimately, guys, what Paul had in mind when he spoke the words joy of faith in Philippians 1.25. We'll see next time that it's bigger than just salvation. But salvation is where all joy in life begins, in Christ as your Savior. Listen, a part of the joy of faith is knowing. Don't miss this. A big part of the joy of faith is knowing that no matter how badly you've lived your life, how wicked, how sinful, God will accept you as his child if you come to Jesus by faith and receive him into your heart as your Savior. Well, you don't know the life I've lived. I don't need to know. Where sin abounds, grace does what? The Greek is superabounds. God's grace is always bigger than any sin you've ever committed. If you're sincere and you want to get your life right with God and you, and you want to receive Christ as your Savior, know this. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will never turn away. Aren't you glad he doesn't have a list? Checking it twice. To see just how good, naughty or nice, you, you know, no. I'm so thankful that when a person comes to Jesus who's lived a horrible life, I've heard of mafia guys getting saved, hitmen coming to Christ. I mean, you know, mass murderers. Right now, Son of Sam is in prison in New York. The mass murderer, this guy got saved. If you think, if you doubt it, you can go online and check it out. Jim Cimbala from the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church out there corresponds with him all the time. Said this guy is the real deal. He is really saved. I've got a few tracks that he wrote. Uh, and says, Mike, Mike, I know I'll never get out of prison. I don't even want to get out of prison. All I want to do is be a witness for Jesus in prison. Now you tell me that guy's not saved. Nobody is beyond God's grace. I don't care how you've lived, uh, what you've done. If you come to Jesus with an open heart, saying, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know you died for sinners. I know you died for me. I want to receive you right now as my, into my heart as my Savior. I want you to come in and be my king. I want you to take control of my life. I don't want to live for myself anymore. Know this, he will come in immediately. And you will be washed of your sins, and you will be made a new creation in Christ. Old things will pass away. All things that will become new. You will be a child of the living God forever. Amen. And ultimately, that's what Paul 
meant when he talked about the joy of faith. Listen, turn to Romans 10 quickly. Because there's always somebody who thinks, well, you know what, though, I don't really believe that offer is open to everybody. Why do people want to find a loophole when it comes to salvation? As if there's always going to be somebody who's just too bad. Pastor, I know you mean well, but come on. Seriously? Mass murderers? Are you, are you kidding me? No. I'm, I'm very serious. And I base that on God's word. Look at Romans 10, verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes, whoever, all right? Whoever, it doesn't say you know, only good folks, moral people, Republicans. I mean, uh, <laughs> sorry, didn't mean to go there. It just slipped out. All right. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That covers everybody on the planet. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You all know, of course, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the world of sinners, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus would not perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. Let me say something to you as we, as we close. I've been reading a lot of articles lately about young people and how that the fastest growing religion among young people is Satanism. Satanism. Why is that? Because Satan has convinced young people that the devil's cool. Christianity? It's full of hypocrites. Uh, that, that's a white supremacist religion. I mean, everything is white supremacy today. The devil, he's the real deal. He's cool. I told you one young person lately just said to me, all my friends know they're going to hell. They want to go to hell. I said, you're kidding me. No, they want to go to hell because they think hell is cool. Hell is where you party. Heaven is where you sit in the cloud and play a harp for eternity. That doesn't appeal to, to, to them. Let me tell you something. The devil is a liar. He has lied to you. If you're watching online, he has lied to you. Are there hypocrites in the church? You better believe there are. You know who put them there? The devil who sowed the tares among the wheat. And if you're going to make look at a church and find that there's some hypocrites and use that as a reason to write off Jesus Christ and Christianity, you have been lied to in the worst possible way. And if you don't see it for what it is and you die in your sins, you're going to have eternity to weep and wail because I think part of hell, part of the agony of hell is knowing that you didn't have to be there. Look, the joy of faith can only start on the earth right now. If you embrace Christ, you have the joy that comes from having faith, which will eventually lead, when you die, to a glorious kingdom, as Peter said, to an inheritance indestructible, undefiled. It's reserved in heaven for you. Doesn't that bless you to think You've got a place in heaven reserved for you.
You get to heaven? I don't know. Probably a low-level angel. I don't think it'll be Gabriel Markle, Michael, but get to heaven and, you know, you got a little angelic grunt and he's like, uh, oh, follow me to your new home, your, your, your dwelling place. Really? Yeah, look at the mailbox. And the mail is never late here in heaven. Look at your name on there. This is yours. This is your dwelling place forever. A place in heaven reserved for you. Look, we're done. Let me just say next week we'll pick this up. It's a big subject. Before we get into all the nuts and bolts of what it means to have joy of faith, in the practical sense, we have to, we had to lay some groundwork so we understand faith. It's under attack. We're in the last days. Jesus is coming soon. And if the devil can pervert your understanding of true faith, get you to buy into a lie about faith, he can basically sever your fellowship with God and neutralize your effectiveness in these last days. That's why we had to deal with this. Now, by God's grace, we'll pick it up next week and we'll have some more practical, maybe even devotional thoughts that are connected to what Paul said in Philippians 1.25. So come on back and keep the study in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great and precious promises. And Lord, we do pray for those young people especially, but for all people in our nation especially, Lord, that are bought into Satan's lies, that Jesus is corny, Christianity is hypocrisy, the devil is real, hell is a party time. Lord, give them grace to see clearly that they have been lied to, that the truth may set them free. The truth of your word. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. For your glory, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.